This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show today is Talking Revolution Blues, and it highlights four past programs on revolution. The French, the Haitian, the Cuban, and the Russian revolutions. Our opening song is The Day After the Revolution by Pulp. The revolution begins and ends with you. For Talking Revolution Blues, we'll excerpt from the following shows. First, The Terror and the Fall of Robespierre with guest IU professor and author Rebecca Spang. Some say, some say here began modernity, or as Spang will tell us, the hope for a better, more equal society, free of hierarchies of power. Then we'll hear from Gerald Horn on the Haitian Revolution from the show Confronting Black Jacobins. The Haitian Revolution is said to be the only successful slave revolt, and just as the French Revolution offered hope for, let's just say it, white equality, the Haitian Revolution created in those same white hearts the darkest of nightmares. There were far more enslaved men and women than their so-called masters. Cuba comes next, but not Castro's Cuban Revolution, rather what might be called the origin of that successful revolt, the fight for freedom in Cuba against the Spanish colonizers, an exhausting and decades-long struggle for a victory that the United States would steal out from under the burgeoning nation. Our focus is on the example of Jose Marti, poet, philosopher, and revolutionary leader, and our guest is Susan Babbitt. Finally, the Russian Revolution. Our show, The Revolution Betrayed, was the final of our three-part series on the 1917 Revolution, and its focus was on Leon Trotsky, who literally wrote the book on it, and a book many considered to be a handbook of revolution, as well as one of the great masterpieces of literature. Our guest is Paul LeBlanc. If the Haitian Revolution struck fear into the so-called master class, so too did the Russian Revolution strike fear into the global oligarchs of the capitalist class. Let, let's also note this is the same class. The people can, have, and will rise up. And now, Talking Revolution Blues. And our first revolution, the French, which lasted for about 10 years, 1789 to 1799, will focus on the fall of Robespierre and the counter-revolution that gave the world Napoleon Bonaparte. Apaisez-vous dans vos tombeaux Le jour tardif de la vengeance Fait enfin pâlir vos Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Terror and the Fall of Robespierre. Our guest is IU history professor Rebecca Spang, whose work focuses on the interaction of politics, culture, and consumption in the 18th century, primarily. 18th yes. and 19th. Uh, her most recent book is Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution. We just heard a song that uh, um, we talked about at the break uh, that is intended to caricature or, I guess, smear Robespierre, smear the, the, revol the terror. Right. right? So in um, the course of 1794, members of the National Convention are increasingly anxious that they may next be identified mm -hmm. as counter-revolutionaries. So what happens in the convention is basically a plot, a conspiracy. You could kind of call it a coup, except the army isn't involved, mm -hmm. that says, um, 
we've got to get rid of Robespierre because he seems to have sort of gone off the rails. He's denouncing everybody. And if we could just get rid of Robespierre, then we will no longer be sending people to the guillotine. Was he denouncing everybody? Um, He was being very vague about who he was denouncing. Mm -hmm. And when he did denounce people, there seemed always to be support for him. Okay. So, um, and the pace of executions was accelerating Mm -hmm. in the course of June and July of 1794, even as the war and the civil war seemed to be going more on the republic side. Gotcha. Um, So in late July 1794, a group within the convention declares Robespierre and a few of his closest collaborators uh, to be under arrest. Um, The Paris city government then says that they are going to come to the defense of Robespierre. Mm. So we really are on the verge of a civil war within the city itself. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, the people of Paris end up siding with the convention. Mm-hmm. And what they think they're supporting is a purge of a counter-revolutionary. They okay. think that Robespierre himself mm. has become counter-revolutionary, that he aspires to become a king, mm-hmm. that he's a sort of Oliver Cromwell figure. And so in order to maintain the purity and sanctity of the republic, it's time to get rid of Robespierre himself. Hmm. Now, what kind of journalism was happening to have created that particular response from the people, right? Is there... Well, there's, again, there's there's been a steady process of blaming Robespierre for the terror, which will greatly accelerate after Hmm. his execution Hmm. um, in Thermidor. So in the aftermath of the execution of Robespierre and his brother and the closest collaborators, people like Couton and Saint-Just, and then of more people who are accused of being Robespierreists. Crucial thing to know is the fall of Robespierre doesn't mean an end to the jailing of political enemies. It doesn't mean an end to political executions. What it means that the people who are jailed and are executed are executed because they are terrorists Instead Mm. of it being the terror that is executing people for being against the republic or counter-revolutionary. So again, you could say that in the aftermath Mm -hmm. of the fall of Robespierre, the country really does plunge into total civil war. um, And it's the military courts established with the help of a particularly charismatic general named Napoleon Bonaparte Mm, um, that will eventually bring the entire country sort of under the same sort of authority. But it's really military authority that's imposed in France in the early 19th century. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show today is Talking Revolution Blues, and it highlights four past programs on revolutions, the French, the Haitian, the Cuban, and the Russian revolutions. This is a segment from our interview with Rebecca Spang on the French Revolution, the terror and the fall of Robespierre. So we move out of this idea that is about um, liberty, Mm. as we say, right? About people being able to vote, to... Uh, not be beholden to is t- taxes are in here too. I forget, but that was more aristocratic. But the sense that we could be um, 
on similar footing. Equality yes. is right. These are these French Revolution terms, right. right? And and the end, what we get is Napoleon Bonaparte. And the end, what we get is Napoleon Bonaparte, who tells a story about himself. And again, this isn't completely a fiction, but it's a very carefully crafted story about the rise of the little guy. Mm. Right? That he starts out a corporal. He's just like Hitler. And he works mm-hmm. his way up by talent. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he and was skilled. He was so yeah. that's a big departure from the idea that you get to be a general right. because you bought your title. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Milita- positions in military command in France before 1789, like any other title, like being a judge, mm-hmm. these are positions you buy. Oh. Um, hmm. Yeah. The revolution gets rid of okay. the sale of offices, except to be a notary. Even today, you still buy a position right, as a notary right. in France. Um, but so the Napoleon story is a story about the creation of a meritocracy. We aren't all going to be equal, but it will be on the basis of merit. Hmm. Um, and Napoleon manages to tell this story very effectively because while civil war, the man we now call Napoleon, he was called General Bonaparte at the time, hmm. while civil war and chaos and really no central government is the state of things in France in 1795-96, Bonaparte is off with his army in northern Italy. They're living off the land. In other words, you know, plundering. Plundering, sure. Uh, And so his soldiers are getting paid. Mm -hmm. uh, And he brilliantly has what are probably the first ever embedded journalists. What? Who are writing his newspaper for him. And they are saying, here is another amazing victory. Mm. So sorry to hear about the chaos in France. Meanwhile, the army with General Bonaparte is doing wonderfully. They're doing great. That's interesting. Did Caesar do anything like that? I feel like he did things like that. (laughs) Well, that's definitely sort of one of Bonaparte's models. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. That's pretty amazing. So uh, what can we call uh, the... I know this is a big question. You mentioned modernity modernity coming on the heels of, or being born out of this idea of uh, perhaps the the fact that you can start over, that you can erase the past. Uh, modernity is the hope hmm. that you can erase the past. Gotcha. Okay. The reality hmm. is we, that you never can. We've seen the reality. It's Bonaparte. Uh, right. And so, well, the the reality is that in the aftermath of 1789, there is the hope that you could maybe Mm. erase the past. It's never achieved. Mm -hmm. And yet we see in everything from, say, the Russian Revolution to modernism in architecture Mm -hmm. or in painting, Mm -hmm. the idea, you know, we're going to break with the conventions. Mm -hmm. We can start something anew. Um, And that hope and ideal is, I think, something that you know, continues well through the 1960s, sort mm-hmm. of enthusiasm for the space program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's something we've sort of lost today. Mm. I think people are much more skeptical about claims about the new. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're cynical about anything that's supposed to promise improvement. Um, and so some people would say we are now postmodern. People do say that. Yeah. I'm not sure quite what that means. Is that just cynicism? It means we are after Mm -hmm. the period called modern Mm -hmm. when we thought that we could start afresh and begin Mm -hmm. anew. So in a way, postmodern is in part um, knowledge of the burden of history that we all carry with Mm -hmm. us. Mm -hmm. 
um, postmodern in architecture, of course, also refers to a tendency to borrow from lots of different time periods mm-hmm. um, and create these sort of funny pastiches. But that's a subject for another show. Yeah, <laughs> well, put it down. <laughs> uh, well, the uh, what would you say? Uh, you know, there th- these are contentious things in terms of what what it gives us. You know, a lot of people would say, what what did the French Revolution do? Um, that is as uh, you would say as negative as much as positive mm. in some so many ways, yeah. right? So, uh, is there a balance sheet for us on the French Revolution? Uh, you know, I, I, on the left, we tend to, I think, say this is a positive thing that we had uh, again rights, uh, as you say, uh, a continuation into the universal, you know, yeah. rights of of, of humans. Uh, this is this is obviously a, a, a check mark in the good column. What uh, what are the negatives of, of the French Revolution? Well, the negatives of the French Revolution. Um, certainly are the uh, very close association between violence and revolution, Mm -hmm. which, as I said earlier, is true perhaps of all revolutions, Mm -hmm. but it's become central to how we think about the French Revolution Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, and may make it difficult to imagine other kinds of revolutions. Okay. Um, But I do think that the ideal of people being able to start afresh Mm -hmm. and of people being able to start afresh because they are equal Mm -hmm. and they want to make the world a better place. That is really something worth holding on to. Mm. Well, it's a good way to end. Thank you, Rebecca Speck. Again, that was Indiana University professor Rebecca Spang. Her latest book is Stuff and Money in the Time of the French Revolution, published by Harvard University Press. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. It's a special show tonight. We're doing four revolutions, four countries, four guests. You're getting to hear them all. It's revolution, baby. In the studio with me tonight, Jennifer Brooks. We're having our fall fun drive, and this is our pitch show. So, Jennifer Brooks, welcome to Interchange. Well, thanks so much. Happy to be here. Jennifer Brooks has always been a stalwart uh, listener and supporter and sometime uh, laborer, volunteer laborer <laughs> for Interchange, being a studio engineer and uh, actually a host uh, at least once, right, Jen? Yeah, that's right. I was a, a listener long before I became a supporter. So I listened and then I started to pledge and then I started to volunteer and now I do all three. <laughs> Uh, so there is a trajectory there. It's been a wonderful experience. I'm so I'm so grateful for the station for all all aspects of that. Well, uh, me too. And uh, just uh, meeting and getting to work with you, Jen, is one of those reasons. Oh, thanks. Our number to pledge for interchange eight one two three two three twelve hundred. Again, eight one two three two three twelve hundred to support interchange on WFHB. You can also go online wfhb.org. There's a donate button. Let us know what your favorite program is, and it should be interchange as you're listening to it right now. And it's <laughs> but a great no show. pressure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I'm putting pressure on you. you oh right. Yes, uh, we're listening to Johnny Diani's "Blame It on the Boars" at the break. Uh, we use Johnny Diani's uh, music for one of our previous shows on uh, Athol Fugard's, uh, um, excuse me, Athol Fugard's play, My Children, My Africa. Uh, so we're going to use that music throughout because it's one of my favorite songs. I think Jen likes it too. I do. 
It's a good one. Uh, so again, remember, this is our pledge drive, and this is uh, Interchange asking you to support the work we do here. It's, uh, it's a fun show, and it's a show where we get to learn many things. Uh, tonight, in particular, revolutions, uh, many things I didn't know about any of these revolutions, and I had never heard of Jose Marti before. We're going to hear mm-hmm. from Jose Marti later. So there's so many things that we get to discover on this program just by working on it, and we get to bring to you as well. So uh, hopefully you like what you hear, and if you like what you hear, we need you to support us. What's the number, Jen? 812-323-1200 or go online, wfhb.org. Uh, you know, Doug, before we get back to it, I want to say quickly, you know, one of the things that I really like about the in-house production here at WFHB is the way that it often prompts discussions or questions on my part about more relevant topics to my day-to-day life. So we're listening to this conversation, or we just listened to this conversation about uh, revolution and modernity, and particularly this notion of violence being an inexplicable, inextricable aspect of revolution. And I'm thinking about all of the conversations that happened in our own community this last year about the purchase of the Bearcat and what its purposes will be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's real value to this kind of programming in these kinds of discussions. Um, I value it. And if you're listening, I know you do too. So please do call us right now, 812-323-1200. A quick thank you to a couple people who donated online today. Doug Harvey, thank you very much. Najla Rootsong, thank you very thank much. Thank you. Tammy Scrivener, Kathy and Neil Storm, what great people. Thank you so much for donating and pledging your support to Interchange. We're going to head back to our program. Uh, let's see. Up next is Haiti. Uh, this is a show with Gerald Horn about the Haitian Revolution and his book, Confronting Black Jacobins. We begin with Jefferson's Cannibals of the Terrible Republic and the Fear of Africans on the March. There's, there's a thing I, I, I came across in your book, uh, Thomas Jefferson, a letter to Aaron Burr, uh, the February 11, 1799 he says, uh, it's impossible the French should invade us since the annihilation of their power on the sea. Our constituents will see in these preparations the utmost anxiety to guard them against even impossibilities. The southern states do not discover the same care, however, in the bill authorizing the president to admit Toussaint's subjects to a free commerce with them and free ingress and intercourse with their black brethren in these states. However, if they are guarded against the cannibals of the terrible republic, they ought not to object to being eaten by a more civilized enemy. Can you unpack that for us? (laughs) Well, that's a very controversial phrase and has been interpreted many different ways. The the obvious way to interpret it is to say that Jefferson meant what he said. Uh, That is to say that, uh, like many before and since, he was associating Africans with cannibalism. And, I mean, th- there was a real fear that the Africans were on the march. And people need to realize that there was not only a demographic imbalance favoring the Africans on the island of Hispaniola, uh, as noted, sometimes the ratio was 30 to 1, Africans to Europeans, but For a good deal of its history, you had a state like South Carolina, which in many ways was an epicenter of slavery, that had a black majority. And this led to quite a bit of fear, perhaps guilty fear, on the part of the slave owners as to 
what the Africans might have in store. In fact, I was listening to your previous program on blacks and policing and the current state of police shootings, be it in Chicago or New York or South Carolina, etc. And I think that part of what's missing with regard to that very worthy debate and discussion uh, generally is connecting that to historical process of slavery and the fear that the blacks would rise up and therefore you need to lay heavy manners on them, as they say in the Caribbean, that they needed to be repressed and suppressed, and therefore you get this, uh, police killings. I should also say that the Haitian Revolution needs to be seen not only as a race question, but also as a class question. That is to say that when the revolutionaries triumphed on the island, this was a blow against slave labor, which seemed to be spreading uh, like an amoeba throughout this hemisphere. But with the triumph of the Haitian Revolution, you saw attempts to curtail slave labor, which of course eventuates in the U.S. Civil War, and they, culminating in 1865. And that is a boon for all working people, not only because of this rather, rather peculiar phenomenon you have in the United States, the so-called light-skinned Negro, you know, in, in South Carolina, excuse me, in South Africa, there's the color population where the lighter skin with African ancestry have their own kind of racial category, whereas in the United States, uh, everybody with African ancestry has been collapsed into one category called black, irrespective of their melanin content. But that also opened the possibility that Europeans, fresh off the boat from Ireland or Italy, for example, into New Orleans, uh, could be traduced and somehow they could be presented as being black when they actually were. But they're light-skinned Negroes who look white, unquote. So in other words, when slavery suffered a blow in Haiti, it not only was a boon for people of African descent, it was a boon for people of European descent, not only because of what I've just sketched for you, but also because slave labor brought down the wage level generally. That is to say, if uh, a radio engineer has to compete with slave labor, a slave labor radio engineer, well, then that's going to drive down the wages and compensation of the radio engineer. So therefore, when slavery suffered a grievous blow, the working class simultaneously was uplifted. It's no accident, as the historians like to say, that after the U.S. Civil War, you began to see gigantic steps towards an eight-hour day towards trade union organization, etc., because the abolition of slavery was a boom for the working class in general. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show today is Talking Revolution Blues, and it highlights four past programs on revolutions, the French, the Haitian, the Cuban, and the Russian revolutions. This is a segment from our interview with Gerald Horn about his book, Confronting Black Jacobins and the Cannibals of the Terrible Republic, to quote Thomas Jefferson. The, uh, the thing that was as interesting in this particular period as well is trying to understand, the, as you speak of class in particular, the divisions 
on the island between uh, again those that that understanding of the of the gens de color the free free men of color free people of color to try to understand those class relationships as well um the the uh, free men of color free people of color also owning uh, uh, slaves enslaving uh, and enslaved population also being party to to raids and 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 piracy as well and trading in, in the same manner as the white plantation owners also well, it's very striking if you look at the history of the United States, as we all know, and as I've just articulated, you have this phenomenon of lighter-skinned Negroes. I mean, you can look like you're the first cousin of Madonna, but if you have the faintest hint of African ancestry, you're designated as black. Well, there's been a particular kind of historical evolution for us to get to that point. As your comment tended to suggest, in the 19th century, you had a small class of slave owners who today would be called light-skinned Negroes, not only in New Orleans, but to a degree in Charleston as well. And what's striking is that many in this category had fled from the island of Hispaniola. They had fled like their so-called 100% pure European counterparts, because of the fear of slave revolts and the fear of enraged Africans. But what's striking is that when they get to the North American mainland, uh, they're not necessarily embraced wholeheartedly as class brethren. Uh, many, because many uh, in the so-called white population, uh, see them as not necessarily being trustworthy because there was this narrative about the Haitian Revolution that it was ignited in August 1791 not least because the Jean de Couleur and uh, those of so-called mixed racial ancestry were demanding equal rights like their lighter or whiter counterparts, and that this creates discord that then the Africans take advantage of. And so there was a fear that that same kind of tension and contradiction would be brought to the North American mainland which leads to a certain kind of skepticism towards this group, despite the fact that during the War of 1812, when the United States barely retains its sovereignty after the Redcoats invade, after the British invade, uh, one of the major reasons why the United States was able to turn back the Redcoats in the pivotal Battle of New Orleans, December 1814, January 1815, was precisely because of the staunch support that the Stars and Stripes received from the Jean de Couleur, from the so-called lighter-skinned Negroes. And it's very striking to note as well that Louisiana, for a good deal of its history during the 19th century, had embraced this population much more so than other parts of the United States. But what's also striking is that if you go back to your high school or college history lessons, you may recall the case of Plessy versus Ferguson in the 1890s. This is the case where the U.S. Supreme Court basically lays down the law with regard to separate but equal. But what's striking is that the plaintiff in this case, Plessy, Homer Plessy, was a lighter-skinned Negro, and he wanted to not be forced to sit in the same train car as the darker skinned, he either wanted to sit with those defined as white, or perhaps a la South Africa to have a separate car for the lighter skin. But the Supreme Court said no. 
they frog marched the lighter-skinned Negroes into the uh, overarching category of blackness, which is where we are today. But what this also tends to suggest is that since we know that there has been a certain kind of historical evolution with regard to race and color in the United States, as the case of Homer Plessy suggests, we may, in the 21st century, see a further evolution, although in which direction it's unclear. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Again, we just heard Gerald Horn talking about the Haitian Revolution. Horn has a new book out from the Monthly Review Press, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in the 17th Century, excuse me, in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Uh, so if you want to find out something about uh, the history of slavery in this country, Gerald Horn's your man. He has written many, many books on the subject. This is Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. I'm joined today in the studio by Jennifer Brooks. Hello, Jen. Hi, Doug. This is our fall fun drive, and we're asking you to call in and support us to show your love, 812-323-1200. Or you can go online, wfhb.org. We're asking for support for Interchange. Uh, We know you like Interchange. You're listening to it right now. Certainly, well, you could be angry about it right now, I suppose. But still, it prompts your thinking and your excitement. Uh, I think we need to do... Wes, do you want to do an underwriting? Yes. Support for WFHB and for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe. Established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available at the-uptowncafe.com. And support for WFHB also comes from the Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. You can explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. The Limestone Post, writers with a voice and photographers with a vision, online at limestonepost.com. Post, thank you, Uptown Cafe. Oh, I'm back on now, sorry. Thank you, Wes. Thanks, Uptown Cafe. Thank you, Limestone Post. Uh, We are here again in the studio. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. I've got Jennifer Brooks with me, and we are here to ask you to support us, support Interchange for our fall fund drive, 812-323-1200. Jen and I often, well, we have this week anyway, started, uh, been pitching for Democracy Now!, and one of the, uh, I guess, examples for this show, for me anyway, has been Democracy Now!, uh, when they do interviews with, with authors, things of that nature. It's been something that's kind of prompted how I think about this show. What what am I missing? You know, what in the history of the world have I missed? And guess mm. what, Jen? It's a lot. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, WFHB has a clear mission, and that mission is to provide an open forum for the exchange and discussion of ideas and issues and to celebrate and increase the local cultural diversity. And, you know, I'm thinking about the interview that we just listened to and you're talking about sort of those silences and hidden secrets in history and how they matter to the structure and organization of our society today. So it's important stuff. Uh, It's not just intellectual or heady. It's worthwhile. And I know that you know that too because you're listening and I'm looking forward to your call at 812 
323-1200. Quick thanks out there. Ian and Jill Storm, thank you. I wonder uh, who he's related to. Uh, Joan Hawkins, thank you. Uh, Marissa Mormon, thank you. Michelle Moy, thank you. A lot of uh, the friends of Interchange uh, are sustaining members. To be a sustaining member, we ask you to pledge an amount that you give to us every month via a uh, credit card or bank account. Uh, it can be as low as $5. We'd like it to be 50 a month, if you don't mind. But uh, $5, $10, I, in fact, uh, give, uh, well, actually, we give about $20 a month uh, for WFHB. It's an important thing in our lives, and, and as Jim was saying, it's because of the conversations that we have, not only on Interchange, but other forum shows like Bring It On, um, Blooming Out, uh, Ola mm-hmm. Bloomington, uh, and Standing Room Only. Was, it's, uh, it's an interesting show because it offers, uh, what am I looking for? Things around the, help me out here, uh, speeches, uh, <laughs> le- lectures. In, around, I was trying to help, campus. but I just so- had no idea. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> anyway, the forum shows here are important, and it's because they open up that conversation. It's a broader conversation than you're going to have when you listen to n- mainstream news. So we want you to call us right now, 812-323-1200, or go online, wfhb.org, to support Interchange. It's necessary. We need you to do it right now. No one else is going to do it. You are going to do it. Okay, so uh, let's get back to the show. We've got two more revolutions, and we don't want to run, run out of time for them. Uh, this next one is Cuba, and I, it sounds like I might be jumping the gun on Cuba, but we're going to go back a little bit and talk about where the Cuban Revolution came from. Cubans and Americans share one explicit defining characteristic, the absolute belief in their exceptionalism. This exceptionalism is marked out in the historical narrative that each constructs, often out of the same material. It was the example of labor and suffrage movements in the United States that inspired Cuba's most iconic figure, Jose Marti, to fight against Spanish colonial oppression, to secure self-determination, and to form a nation committed to racial and social justice. U.S. intervention in Cuba uh, in the Cuban War for Independence and subsequent occupation ended that history until Fidel Castro once again articulated it in 1959. Our guest for this clip is Susan Babbitt, and our focus is on Marti's rejection of liberal philosophy and individualism. I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our show is Jose Marti, The Whole Revolution. Yo soy un hombre sincero, de donde crece la palma y antes de Our music for the show comes from Pablo Milanes, who set several of the poems of Jose Marti to music and released them in 1973 as Versos Sencillos de Jose Marti, or Simple Verses. Milanes, born in 1943, is a Cuban singer-songwriter and guitar player and one of the founders of the Cuban Nueva Trova. This is Yo Soy Hombre Sincero. I am an honest man. The first poem in Martí's collection, Versos Sencillos, published in 1891 as the U.S. Senate was considering authorizing negotiations with Spain to purchase Cuba. These lines come near the end. All is beautiful and unceasing, all is music and reason, and all, like the diamond, is carbon first, then light. (laughs) 
1882, Jose Marti, Cuban revolutionary leader and poet, singled out for disdain the prevalent idea that, quote, there could be no theme better, more stimulating or conducive to depth and grandeur than the study of oneself. That idea remains ascendant. It is a tenet of this culture that expressing who you are is the ultimate right and freedom. And we can now adapt Descartes' Western European proof of existence, I think, therefore I am, to I tweet, therefore I am, or more desperately, I am followed on Twitter, therefore I am. And what about the insistence upon choice as another pillar of freedom and a foundation for happiness? The more choices we have, surely the happier we'll be, especially if there are no constraints on how or what we can choose. This is described as negative liberty, or freedom from interference and imposition. Look to yourself, know your heart, listen to your inner voice, and go your own way, and be sure that nobody treads on you. To José Martí, such liberty is false, believing that it undermines knowledge and understanding, that someone who looks inside themselves for the grounds of personal freedom risks delusion. Such a person, believing the myth of the self-made man, is like an oyster in its shell, seeing only the prison that traps him and believing in the darkness that it is the world. Today on Interchange, we confront the insidious myth of individualism and consider Marti's philosophy of interconnectedness as contrast. Our guest is Susan Babbitt. She's an associate professor of philosophy at Queen's University, Kingston, Canada, author of Jose Marti, Ernesto Che Guevara, and Global Development Ethics. She's also a frequent contributor to Counterpunch. Jose Marti, who would die in the Cuban Revolution against Spain at the age of 42, believed that knowledge and understanding is a collective construction, and that ideas do not originate within us, but come to us through our cultural institutions, like the family, churches, and schools, and our system of laws. And that what is expressed when you express yourself is this collective mind. If your culture is imperial, slaveholding, and expansionist, what kind of self can you express? Susan, let's uh, let's talk about your your the title of your most. This is your most recent book, right? Jose Marti, Ernesto Che Guevara, and Global Development Ethics: The Battle for Ideas. That's right. Let's take that apart, right? So there's a lot in that title, and uh, the book uh, uh, covers all those things. So let's start with Jose Marti. Jose Marti was the leader of the last independence war by Cuba against Spain. He is known as a revolutionary for independence, but his, his, uh, he was distinct from a lot of revolutionary leaders because he believed that independence would never be fully achieved without a liberation from um, the ideas 
that were being instilled in Latin Americans by the dominance of Europe. Mm. And what, what year was this, Susan? Well, Marti died in 1895. He died young. He was only 42. And that was at the very beginning of the last independence war, which ended very badly for Cuba because the United States intervened against Spain. Lenin later called it the first imperialist war. Mm. It was a humiliating defeat for Cuba. And astonishingly, Marti, I mean, you could say looking at his military career that he was a failure. Mm -hmm. But what has really intrigued me was the power of his thinking. Mm It's you read through his work, and this is not just Marti. It's the the philosophers that preceded him that wanted independence right from the beginning of the 19th uh, century. Okay, so uh, um, Marti is a, a philosopher, not uh, not a warrior per se, right? So he's this is the the important part I think to understand a lot of this background. We've had a couple of shows on on Cuba here to try to understand the history of the. Island, and you're you're looking at the philosophy of a couple of people in particular, but the philosophers that go come before Marti, right? So back into the what, 1830s and 40s? Yeah, 18, starting around the, the beginning of the 1800s, really the mm. the end of the previous century with uh, Felix Varela. Mm. And this is something people don't know about Cuba that the Cuban Revolution arose out of a long philosophical tradition, and it wasn't Marxist. Marti was not a Marxist. Mm-hmm. Now, he coincided with Marx and he admired Marx, but he doesn't, in 27 volumes of work, he only cites, mentions Marx a couple times. So that tradition was naturalistic, humanistic, realist, strongly opposed to European liberalism from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. That's what's quite remarkable. Mm. Because in the 20th century, in the tradition that I teach, analytic philosophy, some of the arguments have arisen, arguments similar to the arguments made by those early independence activists in Cuba, but not so comprehensive as the arguments that they were making. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, established 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available at the-uptowncafe.com. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Again, we just heard Susan Babbitt discussing the philosophy of Jose Marti, the philosopher of revolution, and Cuban nationalism. What can it mean to build a nation? to become a people out of the ashes of hundreds of years of slavery. That was on the plate of Jose Marti and Fidel Castro. And some might say on our plate as well. Constantly. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Uh, again, uh, this is Doug Storm on Interchange. It's our fun drive. This is our fall fun drive, and we're here to ask you to support Interchange and WFHB. Our phone number, 812-323-1200. You can also go online, wfhb.org, to support Interchange. Uh, Jen, this is uh, the the period where we often get sort of stymied about what it what it means to sell yourself or sell the station you know sell what it means to people who who listen to the radio station it's a a free service to people who listen to it uh, but it costs money here to put these 
put these programs on the air, from Democracy Now! to the daily local news, to interchange, to bring it on. These things cost money. The, you know, the, the lights on in this room cost money. And so we're here to ask for money for the station uh, to support itself, to support what we bring to the community. Um, yeah, that's quite right. And uh, it's not only that we're bringing something to the community, but rather that we are of the community. I like that. Uh, and that's, for me, a very important part. When I first came to volunteer at WFHB, it's because I was listening so mm-hmm. much. And I would find myself uh, pausing either, um, you know, in reflection for one of the great public affairs programs that you just named, Bring It On or Interchange, um, or and this is really fun, would find myself just grooving to, <laughs> to a song. And then I would realize that so many of my neighbors and people in my community were grooving to that same song. Nice. And that interconnectedness is a really big part of why I love radio and in particular community radio. You know, I love listening to the station and not having commercial breaks. Nice. So I'm very appreciative of all of the, you know, sort of local businesses who uh, support us. Uh, we're enjoying some great Laughing Planet food uh, tonight. Uh, donation made to help support those of us who are here tonight uh, working on on behalf of the fall fund drive so you know be a part of it it's it's fun to uh, give thanks and it's fun to uh, make sure that things in your community can continue to roll so give us a call right now 812-323-1200 that's right thank you laughing planet and thank you Interchange supporters, Michelle Moyd, Alex Lichtenstein, Ryan Zambalan, Fotini Liakos. Thank you all for donating Thank you so much. to Interchange. It's much appreciated. For our final segment tonight on the revolutions that we've done here on Interchange, uh, we're going to turn to Russia. Uh, we close tonight with the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the man who literally wrote the book on it. We know it in the translation of Max Eastman, and I'll suggest here that it might be as much due to Eastman's Russian wife, Elena Krylenko, but I am no historian, and that is rank speculation, so don't hold me to it. The show we're hearing is The Revolution Betrayed, and our guest was Paul LeBlanc, prolific author whose book on the revolution and what followed is called October Song. back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is Leon Trotsky, or The Revolution Betrayed. In this segment, guest Paul LeBlanc wrestles with the fact that the triumph of the Socialist Revolution in 1917 devolved rather quickly into the tragedy of dictatorship, something Leon Trotsky also wrestled with in exile, until his assassination on August 21, 1940, by the NKVD, Stalin's secret police, in Coyoacan, a borough of Mexico City. Your book, October Song, uh, like uh, many others in this period, uh, focuses on on this particular period of revolution. Revolution is percolating at the time. Obviously, there's a 1905 revolution as well. Um, Clearly, Russia is a a kind of powder keg in this sense from the... um, 
uh, freeing of the serfs in the 1860s forward to assassinations of czars and, and the various terror movements that are attempting to unseat power as well. So a lot's happening, and it, it sort of culminates in, in 1917. And, and is your book primarily about 1917 or about October in particular? Well, it goes beyond that. The, the uh, a subtitle is Bolshevik Triumph, Communist Tragedy, mm. 1917 to 1924. So what I'm looking at, the, the uh, revolutionary uh, uh, faction in the uh, Russian socialist movement, they were known as the Bolsheviks, uh, led by Lenin and others. And uh, as I said before, they turned uh, their, uh, the name of their own party from socialist to communist, and uh, tragically, uh, this uh, uh, effort that they were making to establish a super democratic uh, country with a democratic government and a democratic economy uh, turned into uh, a, a dictatorship. The ideals and the ideas that they were fighting for, and I, I look at uh, that in the book, what they were fighting for, what they were fighting against, but then I also look at what happened? What, why did it, what, what went wrong? It seems to me that uh, any serious historian needs to wrestle with that. And also those of us who are sympathetic to the socialist idea need to wrestle with that. What happened in this situation where such an inspiring revolution turned into, in some ways, its opposite? Mm. Now, you mentioned that, um, you know, not only does the turn to Stalinism and, and the turn to dictatorship create a kind of reactionary historical response as well, um, where multiple societies or cultural influences on how we understand history compete over this particular um, period of time. How do we parse the academic, scholarly you know, whoever's going to present 1917 to us, uh, who, who's going to present Lenin to us, who's going to present Trotsky to us? You know, these are the issues that, that seem to me to be, again, coming to the fore, even if you imagine that 1917 kind of lost its sway for a while. Um, how is it that we as readers, lay people, you know, just the general people who are trying to figure out what we can do with this, I guess, where do we go to? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, uh, if we look at the way that the revolution has been dealt with over the past hundred years by analysts, commentators, journalists, historians, uh, social scientists, we find a, a tremendous variety of, of sources and points of view and, and, and so on, so that uh, it can be uh, extremely confusing. It seems to me at the same time that um, there are objective uh, people who are attempting to be objective. Uh, all of us have a point of view, but it's important to understand what the reality is uh, at the same time and what happened in history. And there are some journalists, some commentators, some historians who attempt to do that in a serious-minded way, uh, as opposed to just setting up some kind of good guys, bad guys scenario in order to uh, promote their particular point of view. You can find that all over uh, the political spectrum, but there are some uh, more serious people who attempt to wrestle with what happened, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, who uh, factor in the points of view of many of the participants in uh, a balanced way. 
I try to do that in my book, October Song, but there are others who do the same thing. I want to use uh, one of the first examples of uh, an account of the Russian Revolution by an American journalist, a young radical named John Reed, who wrote a classic called 10 Days That Shook the World. It was an eyewitness uh, report on the Russian Revolution. Uh, the other book is Leon Trotsky's uh, Great History of the Russian Revolution. So I would urge readers to look at various points of view and, uh, you know, try to make sense of things themselves, but veer away from a good guy's bad guy's uh, uh, account of what happened. Reality is always more complicated than that. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show today is Talking Revolution Blues, and it highlights four past programs on revolutions, the French, the Haitian, the Cuban, and the Russian revolutions. This is a segment from our interview with Paul LeBlanc for part three of our series on the Russian Revolution, this one focusing on Lev Bronstein, better known as Leon Trotsky. Trotsky himself writes the, I guess, the historical document of the time, or it's an after response. Uh, you know, he's writing it, I believe, while he's in Norway. Is that right? Um, um, well, he was working on it for a while. So uh, right. I think he was working on it in Turkey, where he was in oh, exile. Turkey, right, right, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he ended up in uh, France, in Norway, uh, and then ultimately Mexico, where he died. But uh, Trotsky is a very interesting figure. He was a, uh, you know, people uh, who uh, love his ideas and people who despise his ideas generally agree he was a great writer, one of the great writers, uh, and a great orator, brilliant, brilliant mind. And he was one of the leaders of the Russian Revolution, and he organized, uh, after the revolution, helped to organize and, and lead the Red Army in the battles of the Civil War. Um, you know, that consolidated the uh, the communist regime. Mm -hmm. Then he uh, opposed, um, uh, along with Lenin, uh, a, a tendency towards uh, bureaucratic authoritarianism that was developing more and more in the Soviet Republic. Lenin died, but Trotsky continued his battle against uh, the Stalin dictatorship and was thrown out of the country and eventually murdered by a, a, an agent of Stalin. Mm -hmm. um, so he's a very interesting figure. He never uh, abandoned his ideals and ideas, um, but it's interesting to uh, see what he has to say about the revolution and about what happened after the revolution. He was an important source. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our guest is Paul LeBlanc historian of labor movements and socialism, whose latest book is October Song, Bolshevik Triumph, Communist Tragedy, 1917 to 1924. Yeah, so talk briefly um, about, I guess, talk a little bit, if you can, first about the literary quality of, of that text, The History of the Russian Revolution. It's uh, widely praised, as you say, as, uh, as being one of the, maybe the great, a great piece of literature as much as uh, something that you look to for history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, Trotsky did what any serious historian has to do, which is uh, comb through various sources and various sources that come from different points of view. 
And uh, so it's a rich uh, history simply from that standpoint. It's also enriched because he participated in the events. He knew the individuals. He knew the people that uh, uh, you know were involved in uh, furthering the revolution and opposing the revolution. So he's able to bring those kinds of insights into the book. But then also he has a certain view of history and of revolution that uh, encompasses and embraces the masses of ordinary people whose lives and activities make up the history. Uh, he, at one point uh, early in his book, he says that a revolution is when the masses of ordinary people intervene and interfere with what's happening in history and, and uh, a struggle to make their own history. And he captures that uh, quality of uh, the Russian Revolution that uh, uh, some historians miss, hmm. uh, but it's very much, it's central to his account. Now, I understand from several writers that you would even call it a manual of revolution. Well, uh, yeah, the, in a way it is. That is, he's he wrote it not simply to uh, take a stroll down memory lane, but because he believed it was relevant uh, to uh, uh, current and future struggles in the 1930s and beyond. And that if you understand what are the causes of revolution, what is the need of revolution, how are revolutions made, how is this particular revolution made, all the different uh, elements uh, from uh, the oppression of masses of people and, and their uh, elemental fighting back against that oppression, and then uh, uh, the role played by uh, groups of workers and peasants and intellectuals who size up the situation and say, okay, here's what's wrong and here's what we want to uh, achieve and how do we get from one to the other. Looking at those kinds of things in the Russian Revolution can be helpful uh, for people in their struggles you know, after the revolution, that particular revolution in the 1930s and beyond. So he was writing it in part to account for what happened, but also, as you said, as a, a, a source for people who uh, believe in the need for making a revolution in their own time, in their own context. That's our show. We're closing with The Revolution Starts Now by Steve Earle. You have one minute to pledge, 812-323-1200. Your gift keeps interchange on the air. Pick up the phone now. I'll personally take your pledge, and I'll thank you in advance for your support. Thanks to Jennifer Brooks for joining me tonight. Always a pleasure, Jen. Great to be here. Thanks, Doug. Thanks to all the authors and scholars who come on the show to shine a light onto our past so that we might walk into our future with more awareness and a broader perspective. Supporting Interchange also supports their work. Next time on Interchange, Eric Dawson joins us to talk about his new book, Putting Peace First, which details seven commitments you can make that can change the world. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is in the studio on the board tonight, and he's our executive producer. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Now